0: Welcome to T Hanks for the Memories, I'm your host Darren and today we're going to be talking about Bachelor Party uh, Which was Tom Hanks, I would say his second kind of big film uh, Which was released on June 29th 1984 Uh, It did quite well at the box office, it had a budget of 7 million, it made almost 40 So uh, by 80 standards, I mean these days that would be, I don't know, half a billion It would make tons of money (laughs) Um, It was extremely successful, let's put it like that uh, another, ex- I mean, not quite as successful as Splash, but then, you know, this was an R-rated comedy. Uh, Tom is once again uh, getting top billing, um, although on the poster, unusually for Tom Hanks, there's just a bunch of people with Tom Hanks. Uh, normally, we get like a gigantic face from Tom Hanks, but in this case, uh, we've got the entire bachelor party on there. And joining me to talk about this film today, I have John muggleton Hello, John. Howdy. And Eric Deutsch. Hello, Eric. Hello. Uh, now, I'm going to be completely honest with people listening. I watched this film about an hour ago, uh, and it's the first time I've ever seen it. Uh, I think I've kind of picked up bits and pieces, you know, uh, through other pop culture about this film. In particular, a scene that we'll talk about later on involving a mule. Um, but for most of, you know, like I, I, I would see this film in, um, you know, video stores. You know, you see that you see that kind of, that, that kind of the poster with Tom Hanks kind of holding back everybody and the kind of legs in the in the foreground, like, you know, you see that on VHS, you know, all over the place um, you know, along with a couple of other Tom Hanks films from the early 80s that I hadn't seen um, you know, which I will talk about in the, in the upcoming weeks uh, including Volunteers and Nothing in Common you know, I remember seeing those along with like Money Pit and Dragnet I remember seeing those in the in the store and just kind of thinking, okay like, you know, Tom Hanks obviously had a lot of films by the time I paid any attention to him uh, I would have to be honest. and I think Big is probably the first one that I really saw of his, um, and and I just remember seeing the cover. And for uh, what is this now, twenty, thirty something years, <laughs> uh, I can't say I ever really felt the need to watch it, um, because I think early eighties comedies can be particularly hit and miss. And I will say for anybody listening, you know, uh, trigger warning: we are going to be discussing several times throughout the film suicide, um, and there is some transphobia in this film. Probably two of the things that would put me off from watching a lot of eighties comedies. Um, I will say outside of like I know I the one that one plot I don't even know why it's in there. I'm not even sure what the whole Gary thing with Tim. It, I don't know what that means. That's meant to be. It's just the eighties, I guess. Pretty much. Um, yeah. So I don't know how about you guys. You know, like uh, when when do you first remember seeing this film? Um, I know, I mean, I know John is certainly older than me. Yes. Uh, I don't know if Eric is older than me. (laughs) Um, I'm a couple of uh, years older than you. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I don't know if either of you saw it like theatrically or if, if you just saw it, you know, on cable or whatever, uh, as, as happens to Americans, uh, they see a lot of films on cable. Uh, (laughs) Well,
1: I was the, uh, pretty much, uh, the trigger, the target age for this movie. I was 13 when it came out. So... Uh, I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it first probably uh, on VHS. Uh, Actually, no, let's see, 1984? No, we wouldn't have had VHS yet, so I saw it when it made it to the cable, and I will tell you that I probably watched it a hundred times because it was one of those movies that seemed like it was always on, particularly between, I would say, 1986 and 1988. It was constantly on one of the movie channels that we had. Uh, so, and I will also say that I, uh, was not able to get a copy of it to watch in the run-up to this movie, but in the run-up to the show, but I think I've seen it enough times that I can still, uh, push right along. So,
2: uh, very similar to John. I'm a few years younger than him, so I, I did not see it in the theater, but we had HBO and I actually taped this one off of HBO, probably too young of an age actually. And I watched this one. I, not a hundred times, but definitely a couple of dozens. So I saw this movie a lot as a kid also. I actually have it on DVD, so I was able to rewatch it uh, in preparation for coming on. And uh, my wife rewatched it with me, actually, and we both cracked up like we'd never seen it before. Uh, it just, it's one of those movies that uh, was a big part of my childhood rotation. And I'm, I'm actually very fascinated in hearing, Darren, from you as someone who is a big Tom Hanks fan, who had not ever seen this, because this is really his one only R-rated raunchy comedy, this is not Philadelphia or Saving Private Ryan. I'm fascinated to know that you literally just watched this for the first time.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a fan of some 80s comedies myself. I've already mentioned it, I think, in previous episodes, or even future episodes, The recording of this is all over the place. Um, You know, Mannequin was one of those films that, that I feel is the same as this film is for you, where I watched it over and over and over um, you know, and it's, you know, it's just kind of embedded, uh, and Weekend of Bernie's. I think I ended up like, you know, watching that quite a few times as well. Um, so, I mean, what I would say is it's very 80s in terms of its structure. Like you don't get comedies these days where within the first like five minutes, you've met almost every single character and, and kind of in real quick succession. And there is a little bit of, there's a little bit of this that feels like, Some of the stuff that Tom Hanks would end up doing in Punchline, where he's constantly, like, making jokes, and in Punchline, some of those aren't funny, uh, but here, they are, Um, so I just did, you know, like, when he picks up the kids, you know, the very start, we should say, obviously, he's a bus driver. Um, just for a Catholic school? I don't know. He drives his bus around. Yeah, I think it's for a Catholic school. Yeah. So he's just a, he's a bus driver. That's his only, I don't know how you can make an income off just being a bus driver like twice a day, picking the kids up and dropping off. Um, but you know, he, he turns up, he's, he's dressed as, as the, as his future father-in-law would say, like a bum, like, he's he's wearing kind of like a it looks to me is it meant to be like a baseball top or it's some kind of like sports jersey isn't it that he wears for the the first half it's a japanese
1: baseball jersey
0: i mean you know i think that looks i mean it doesn't look you know particularly neat but at least you know it's a it's a look and so you know he kind of drives in and as he's driving the kids off he starts making jokes about like he does the kind of um you know the kind of captain speaking thing and people are now you know free to move about the cabin and then it's funny cuz all the like the schoolboys they sit still until he finishes that speech uh, on ADR I should say as well it's not really like it's not really clear that he's actually saying any of this uh live on the day and and then they all start like you know betting and he says you know 10% of that goes to the house and you know there's a lot of kind of quick fire jokes which i you know that was what i kind of really liked and particularly because as i said in you know pretty much every episode up to this point tom hanks just kind of has such a natural charisma um, that you ju- you just can't help but love like you know him um you know obviously it was a it was a worldwide disaster when everyone found out he had covid you know like it was it was headline news um and in in in, in past years this may seem like a morbid thought i've thought to myself who is a person who would die that would you know that the news would stop and announce and i think you know and then people would be being mourning for like two or three days and I think Tom Hanks is probably one of the few people left
1: yep probably um, I mean that's the that's yeah. uh, basically I believe if not the final joke close to the final joke in the TV series veep which is when uh, uh, um, Julia Lewis's Dreyfus character I think passes away uh, they start talking about her and then they interrupt it because Tom Hanks also had died the same day yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, he is. He is like that beloved, I think. Um, and it, you know, he just had in the eighties certainly just this kind of energy that is instantly there on screen. And then we are introduced uh, in gradual order to people who have none of that charisma, I would say, and have <laughs> literally none of that energy. And in these first five minutes, I think there are. I th- I, look, I'm not saying any of these actors are bad. Like you know, they're 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 kind of good actors. Um, you know, I would say, I mean, again, I, you know, the guy who's playing Gary, he, you know, he, he is what he is, you know, like he kind of gets across this kind of sleaziness. Um, you know, the waiter seems kind of like checked out and not interested, you know, Rudy seems like over the top and, you know, and, you know, the, the photographer guy, uh, Jay O'Neill, I think one of the only other characters who gets like a full name basically <laughs> in the film. Um, other than when we, when we meet, um, you know, his, his, uh, his rich brothers, um, sorry, Rick's brother. He hasn't got more than one brother. Um, I, I mean he, I mean he starts basically being introduced uh, committing sexual assault. Um, and and then Tom Hanks joins in, which is one of the more unusual scenes where this lady, you know, this lady who has large breasts has got a kid, and instead of taking pictures of the kid, they basically take a top down and just take pictures of their breasts and. You know, both O'Neill and Rick are, like, sticking their head either side of him and then up and down, and it's just... its I, I mean, you know, it is about as 80s comedy as I think this film gets. Um, you know, I mean, she seemed willing. There seemed to be some consent there, so... But at the same time, like, this is meant to be this guy's workplace, and he's just, like, taking pictures of this woman's breasts instead of doing his actual job, which is, you know, child portraiture by the looks of it. Yeah,
1: he's... Uh, uh, he I mean, he's... I would say Adrian Zemed is probably... The only uh, one of the—I mean, obviously he's the mo- hes the named one, but he's also the only of the friends who comes across as anything even remotely talented. I mean, I love Michael Dudikoff's action movies, but in this movie he's basically—he's uh, Raiko. In this movie he's basically just there to be kind of goofy meathead, and that's about it.
0: And you know, so you know, we meet the guys, we meet Gary, and I think the fun—I mean, what I—I'll say this about Gary Grossman, who from what I understand is not really done much after this like he does he is kind of this this fast talking like you know ticket salesman i don't think he's meant to be like a scalper or something but he's just someone who seems to have like an in into the various like concerts that are going on in what i'm assuming is the la area because i think that's where this this was filmed but they never really say um, and so he keeps mentioning like different famous concerts and then they do a joke about um uh, Boy George. Is it Boy George? I think it's, it's Boy, Boy George. Boy George, yes. Boy George, yeah. And they say that Boy George has got uh, a yeast infection, which I think is supposed to be a joke about his sexuality or the way that Boy George presented in the 80s. And I'm like... Okay, I guess that's sort of a joke,
1: but it's like in in it falls it would fall less flat in 1984, 1985 than it falls in 2021.
0: Yes. So like stuff like that, I was like, okay, I under like but the thing is I don't think I'm meant to like Gary, so the fact that he would make that type of joke about boy George, it's like okay, like I you know, I, I, it's a I mean, when they when they actually finally get to where Raiko is a waiter, I think it's his restaurant isn't it where they they make the announcement. Um, or of the of the upcoming wedding, which is going to take place in like a week, which like you know, the, the impression I get from all his friends is they don't seem to know that he's been going out with anyone. So, so. yeah, I, that
2: was that's always something that fascinated me about this movie. He tells his friends I'm getting married a week from Saturday and they seem to at least know that he's dating Debbie, but the fact that he's telling them I'm getting married a week from Saturday, so in a week and a half, we're, i mean how is this being planned how do you yeah, know your it, friends are even it, it available makes no sense. from saturday I mean, it makes no sense at all
0: yeah <laughs> yeah so that was the first thing where i was like okay i and then they they did the the 80s comedy thing which i've you know i see it was i've seen in quite a few films where everyone is literally talking over the top of each other and that is meant to be funny and i'm like i just can't tell what anyone's saying like i think they're making jokes or they're like we are meant to get the idea that they're they're good friends but i don't i don't spend time talking over my good friends when they when I'm talking to them i listen to what they're saying um so i i just thought that was all but i guess what the energy they're looking for is they want to get the premise really set up quickly and then they want to move on and get to the point where they they scream that they're going to hold a bachelor party and then you know um we kind of so i it feels like they're just trying to get that out of the way but yeah it doesn't make any sense that they that all the guys seem to be like kinda of thrown by the fact that Rick is getting married. Um, you know. And and then and then, you know, obviously once we get to once we get to Debbie, which is gonna be really weird because my mother's name is is Deborah and people <laughs> call her Deb. So every time people kept saying Debbie in this I was like, Oh, that's that's a little bit odd. Um you know, uh, but yeah, so you know, obviously Tony Cattain I'll say R. I. P. Tony Catane. Yeah. Um since 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 I started planning this podcast, you know, she recently died. Um, I think a few weeks ago as this episode goes up. Um, and she is stunningly beautiful. In fact, I would say she, she's way out of Tom Hanks's league. Yes, um, definitely. <laughs> like, So maybe that's why all the friends are kind of puzzled as to why where they get married because um, you know, and she is obviously used to set up this kind of, this classic 80s sobs, snobs versus slobs. Um, and I think we're meant to side with the snobs uh, or the slobs. I don't know which in this case, I, I'm not sure because all these guys, like I said, they're You know, apart from Tom Hanks, I'm not really getting that endeared to any of them. But like it just the the kind of the again, this it feels like a bit of a cliche, but maybe this is where it started with the kind of the extremely posh family. And, you know, they don't like, you know, their future son in law. Um, And which I don't I don't understand, because aside from the fact that he doesn't like, you know, dress in a suit all the time or whatever. Tom Hanks is perfectly likable. <laughs> so, well, I think well, it's probably... Debbie's father. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably the fact he that... He runs
2: through that whole list of things that he doesn't like about him.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think it's probably the fact that a, a Tom Hanks, obviously, as a bus driver, isn't going to make a lot of money, which, you know, we talked about. And, you know, maybe he thinks, oh, I'm going to end up having to support them or something. I mean, Debbie works in a gross, in a clothing store, but, you know, how much is that going to do either? You know, but of course, also, it's the 80s, so at those times, those are jobs where you could, ex- could have a decent apartment and make your rent and do things like that. As opposed to now where, you know, we're all crashing. We're all crashing. And it's only Elon and uh, Jeff Bezos out there, you know?
0: So, I mean, but like the, obviously the family dynamic of, you know, Debbie's family, not liking Rick and, you know, Rick sets this up a couple of times saying how much Mr. Thompson hates him. Uh, You, like you say, they play some tennis and Mr. Thompson lists all the reasons why he hates, he hates Rick and he doesn't want him marrying his daughter. Um, and that kind of tension is, uh, you know, not... It's really weird. Obviously, this is called Bachelor Party for a reason, because there's a bachelor party. Um, but as I said before we start recording, it takes an hour before that truly becomes a party. Um, and, you know, it's happening for about, you know, I don't know, 20 minutes in the film, and then it kind of gets broken up pretty quickly. So most of this film is about the conflict between, uh, you know, Mr. Thompson not liking Rick and uh, the ex Cole. With his personalised plate that says (laughs) Cole, coming in and trying to take Debbie back, or or try and take Debbie away from Rick. Um, And again, this feels. I mean, to me, the whole like everything in this about marriage, and I know it's meant to be a comedy, but it all feels like like an eighties stand up set, um, kind of adapted into a film a little bit. Where like all like you know we'll we'll meet later on um you know brad um who hates his wife and when when we meet stan stan seems to hate his wife and and you know even later on um you know there's there's a kind of question that's put to um is it o'neill or is it or is it brad Uh, sorry or is it stanley one of them kind of describes, you know, marriage as being, oh, it's great for the first month, and then the second <laughs> That's month is yeah. I love that. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. <laughs> so but the third you know, month the... you're numb, he says. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: So there's a whole lot of like marriage is, you know, is a sentence, um, and 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 I, like I don't know. I just I, I guess maybe like you know, thirty something years later, it just doesn't feel like uh, you know that really makes sense um, as kind of part of the the joke um but yeah and here's a re- this is a super weird thing and it happened in it happened in splash um and it happens here which is he has to have a blood test before he gets married
1: yes uh that's uh that uh, used to be a thing it isn't anymore but uh so actually i think yeah. maybe some states still require it but um I, at least in connecticut when i got married we didn't have to have a blood test
2: yeah, I looked this yeah. up, actually, because I was I, I was confused about that. It was done specifically years ago for syphilis, specifically, um, to try to defeat to, to syphilis. And there are still a few places here in America, at least, that they do still have to do it. It's done in Mississippi. It's done in Washington, D.C. It's done in Montana, but only for women in Montana. And it's done in New York, but only specifically for African-Americans and Hispanics to detect sickle cell infections. Uh, and that's it
0: of course in splash uh the blood test (laughs) was a plot point not because of um you know anything to do with you know potential diseases but because of course it would reveal that madison was a mermaid apparently so uh that's why it was kind of brought up there and they were like we're gonna have to travel to a state where they don't require a blood test (laughs) but again on the podcast i was like that's an odd thing um but, you know, his brother is the one who kind of does the, the test. Uh, William Tepper, playing Stanley Gasco. Um, and uh, there's kind of a... Uh, there's like a whole thing with him not obviously not enjoying te- the blood being taken. Um, and then there's a lot of kind of playful back and forth um, of something which will get mentioned so many times in this film, which is hookers. <laughs> and... You know, I think this is kind of probably one of the first mentions of it. I think it was mentioned a bit by the guys when they were kind of uh, bantering in the restaurant, um, but this is kind of where, uh, you know, to kind of make fun of Stanley, who is, of course, married to uh, Tina, and, you know, their marriage obviously is terrible, and, you know, he, he can't say anything too bad, or otherwise his wife will kind of get angry at him. Um, so he kind of mentions hookers, and he kind of slams the door, and then we see him with, like, the kind of... Uh, the needle's still in his arm and the blood's still in there, and there's like you know there's a nice little back and forth where where he where he like t- you know takes the needle out and gives him you know like a cotton swab and he goes oh, you know that's a, that's a good exchange you know that this for for my blood, um so I, I, I it's 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 a weird scene and then when we meet Linda, uh, sorry I said Linda because that's the character she plays in Back to the Future, uh, <laughs> when we meet Wendy Jo Sperber as Tina Gasco. Um, she is uh, rectally examining a patient. Yes, um, and she and she still has the gloves on, and she like goes to kind of like congratulate him, and He's he grabs her. her arms. Yep. <laughs> and he and I thought that was a nice bit of physical comedy. Yes, like, they husband
1: and um, wife proctologists, know. which must be a fun yes. thing. <laughs>
0: and yeah, even the so, patient,
2: uh, while being examined, congratulates Rick as well.
0: Yeah, which is a nice touch, you know. <laughs> um, I haven't really spoken much about Debbie because. I think that the whole kind of closed shop scene is a bit kind of, you know, I don't want to do some kind of backseat screenwriting, but it's unnecessary. We already know that Rick's getting married. I'm sure we can, like, meet Debbie, you know, when we meet Mr. Thompson. Like, why have a second scene where, you know, the the kind of, you know, the, the like, Debbie with her friends in the clothes store celebrates that she's getting married. Like, I think they're just trying just to establish
1: like, the friends, maybe. Although obviously not really very well,
0: I was going to say like they're they're kind of aside from you know the uh, the sister um, you know uh, Eileen is it Eileen the cousin
2: yeah Eileen Eileen. oh the
0: cousin yeah the cousin yeah apart from her I you know they're kind of you know and obviously Tina uh, they kind of all blend in don't they so it's like you know if you're going to have a scene establish them and kind of give me some names and you know really kind of let me know who they are. Uh, but it's a bit of a mess. Um, and then there's just this weird gag about the changing room that's only got half a door. <laughs> and I was like, I guess that makes sense if, I don't know, if you're only like, if you're, if, if it's meant to be like a lady shop and you're only trying on bras, I guess that's the part it covers. But like, I, I, I didn't understand that at all. Like, she was like, it looks nice. And I'm like, kind of, but like... You can have like half naked or maybe even fully naked people getting changed there and everyone can see the bottom half. It's just it's just insane. Uh, that at no point during the fitting of those doors did anybody point this out to anyone. No. Um, so, but you know, it's played for laughs. Uh, we never go back to this clove shop again. Uh, we do get a good look at everybody's hair, which is extremely 80s. Like this... There's a lot of uh, I'm sure there's a lot of like, uh, you know, uh, hairspray that was on that set because there's a lot of a lot of teased hair um, in that scene. Um, But, you know, we get to meet Debbie. And as I said, I mean, ridiculously beautiful. It is. It's kind of just insane. uh, Like, you know, how good looking she is. Um, And, you know, like we said, recently died. And I would say her career kind of consists, I don't know, yeah you know, she became well known for you know marrying david Coverdale and appearing in a bunch of videos for um uh white, white, snake. Snake. white snake yep that's it there we go <laughs> and she obviously did like you know a few more kind of films after this but i i feel like she didn't you know um she didn't really kind of um you know kind of have a kind of hugely successful career like um you know after this You know, she kind of worked for the rest of the 80s, but then it just, you know, it became kind of more um, sporadic in terms of, like, her acting opportunities. And she kind of did some some stuff on TV, but...
1: And then she disappeared until she uh, got arrested for beating up her uh, boyfriend or husband, who was a former Major League Baseball
0: player, a guy
1: named Chuck Finley. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, Who I actually do remember, Chuck Finley. (laughs) Yep. Uh, because he was a pitcher, pitcher for the Indians. Yes, Is that what I remember him. Angels. Oh, yeah, oh, the Indians also, an angel yeah. Also. yeah, yeah. I think I remember him when he was in the I, the Indians uh, bullpen, kind of in the I want to say um, early two thousands. Uh, there was a bunch of pitchers who kind of, you know, reasonably good. Um this has gone completely off topic but uh yeah so it's it's inter- it's interesting that she you know she beat him up and she got arrested and that was kind of what she was known for. Uh you know she kind of got into drugs. Uh I feel you know her life kind of went a little bit off the rails and then you know obviously earlier you know earlier this month as we record but you know almost exactly a month ago when the S episode goes up she, you know she died. Um and you know it's kind of tragic because I feel like you know if she'd have found the right projects I think she would have been you know, a bigger star, but it feels, it feels like, um, I don't know, I always get a bit suspicious when somebody marries someone famous and then all of a sudden their career stops for a few years. And then once they divorce that person, it starts up again. Um, so I don't want to blame David Coverdale, but I feel like, Oh, you can <laughs> like, blame David Coverdale. <laughs> yeah. I feel like for a couple of years there, she wasn't working because all she was doing was appearing in his videos. Um, But yes, so she, you know, and I think she had a reputation of being one of those uh, ladies in the '80s who were kind of extremely beautiful, not the greatest of actors. You know, I think she's okay in this. Um, You know, I I think she's kind of matching Tom Hanks' energy, but um, it's it's still some of the stuff between her and him feels a bit more stilted. Yeah, Um, it's yeah. She
2: even plays in a Seinfeld episode where she plays someone who is a bad actress, actually. oh
0: there you
1: go (laughs) Uh, it's funny because i was looking at the trivia for this and apparently the producers wanted to cast kelly mcgillis to play debbie and i yeah no maybe not i think they even got to the point of trying her out and then didn't it didn't work i mean i can't yes she was uh she was
0: she was she was fired um they had her doing a screen test and they just couldn't apparently she had no chemistry with anyone. Oh, so okay. they, they fired her. Uh, which is not to say that Kelly McGillis is a bad actress. I think, you know, in the eighties she's she you know she she did quite well.
1: Yeah, but uh, I, I mean that not the, this is not the Kelly McGillis
0: kind of movie. No. Um and I would say, you know, between Tom Hanks, Tony Katane and like Adrian Zemed, I think that's where the strength of this film lies, is, is the three of them. Yeah. You know, the stuff between him and Adrian Zemed is really good. Um, I would even say William Tepper is quite good as, you know, as Stan, um, you know, and Wendy Jo Sperber, obviously, you know, a year later, she's Linda McFly. Um, but I think she was quite good as well. You know, she has a kind of, she stands out from the rest of the, this kind of gaggle of, of women uh, who kind of make up the, the kind of the, uh, what is the opposite of a bachelor party? The, a uh, bachelorette party. I guess, but they call it something different I, in this. I believe you guys <laughs> call it a hen
1: overseas. We do,
0: and... And in fact they actually mention in this film they say they say it's going to be a stag which is which is exactly what they call it over here you know nobody calls it a bachelor party um, which is maybe why I never saw this film because it didn't translate if they had to put stag do as the title of it you know internationally then <laughs> maybe it would have traveled um but yeah so you know we've established we've established debbie we've established rick we've established rick's friends um this is a classic uh, 80s um you know getting married film in that uh, the groom only has male friends and the bride only has female friends. <laughs> and so they can handily be split up into bridesmaids and what I'm assuming will be groomsmen by the time we get to the wedding. Um, you know, I'm hoping that Rudy doesn't dress in his uh, his uniform for that because he's he turns up to the the, the bachelor party in his uh his mechanic like outfit, which is the only way I knew that that was the guy who definitely was the car mechanic in the in the opening thing, was just because he he was actually wearing it with a name badge on, um, you know, and and I think the scene with the the kind of lunch, uh, you know, where where like <laughs> basically Mister Thompson says I don't like this about you, and then Cole turns up, and you know he's kind of he's going to try and intimidate Rick, but I like that over the lunch, you know. There's like a, just a ton of jokes coming from Tom Hanks. He's like his character is just not being serious. He's talking about like adopting a a seventeen year old, and you know he says that he's gonna have tons of kids with uh, with Debbie. And I, what I think is funny is like the, like kind of the good thing in the scene is it's clear that Debbie finds this this stuff funny. Like she's not embarrassed by Rick. You know she finds this kind of charming, and I I like that that kind of comes across pretty quickly. Like you know she she's enjoying it. The cousin is just a misery for the entire film and uh, and she has what is my least favourite characteristic of any character which I always feel is like a really weak thing which is her entire personality is she smokes and she's smoking in every single scene throughout this film and when they dress, when later on the girls will all dress up as um, as hookers she she has a cigarette holder and she's still constantly like she's constantly smoking and it's like surely she's going to have like a second i mean it's a good way to make a stand out but it's like she needs a second personality trait which is hating hating her husband i think isn't it is she married or, or- well, hating hating men? hating just all men yeah 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 so you know like really she's the only character that can kind of that we can kind of that i certainly particularly remember you know i guess there's also the mother um but you know she she becomes more pivotal later on in the in the film Um, but yeah, and you know, pretty quickly we get, you know, we, we have a little bit of, uh, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't understand. I mean, this, maybe this is just me, but this scene just didn't like, we've got, you know, Rick and Debbie are in bed. They're kind of discussing, you know, the upcoming nuptials and, you know, their thoughts on it. And, and there's like a thunderstorm and then a ton of saxophone out of nowhere. And I was like, what is this meant to like, is this meant to be in a serious drama? What is this
1: film? Like, it's supposed to be, it's a moment of drama that they add into I guess break up the film. Although again, it's something they probably could have just chopped out without missing it. I think the idea is it's supposed to set up the eventual, you know, Tom Hanks not wanting to screw around at the bachelor party thing and all that stuff. I think that's what it's where it's going, but it's eh, it could be it would have been cut.
2: It really didn't add anything. It, it kind of is the only serious scene in the whole movie when when Debbie's sitting there listing off all the things she's worried about. Uh, and Tom Hanks is like, all right, you know, it'll be fine. And yeah, they show them both lying there with their eyes open after they turn the lights off. It, it, it definitely, tonally, does not fit the rest of this just screwball 80s comedy. You know,
0: I should say, like, um, who's the guy who plays Cole? Uh, I don't think I ever really looked up the actor's name. No. I don't know his name, <laughs>
2: it's... but... Uh... We know who he else. Another classic eighties villain. He's in though.
1: He's Kent in Real Genius.
0: Yes. Also written by the same team that wrote this. Oh, okay. Um, and
1: he in is, fact has a. Well, we'll get to it. But he has a classic car in that that gets destroyed in or or altered in much the same way that happens in this movie.
0: Uh, I should say, you know, the film is the film is written by Pat Proft and Neil Israel, who you know are a writing team. Pat Proft, you know, has done a lot. Um, including both Police uh, Naked Gun and Police Academy, <laughs> you know he wrote for Police Squad uh, on TV, and then he wrote a ton of like uh, Police Academy films. Um, and it's I don't know it's it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of weird, like uh, you know. And then later on, we'll we'll talk about it maybe more at the end. But they did a sequel to this, and he wrote <laughs> wrote that as well. Um, but uh,
2: yes, yeah, so- Pat Proft also he is in this movie. He is a man in the couple that comes up later on that has a close encounter with a certain body part of Cole. The screaming guy,
0: yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so uh, he's he's Robert Prescott. Uh, He hasn't really done a huge amount. Uh, uh, He was apparently in Roman J. Israel Esquire, uh, which I think is just the funniest title of any film ever made. Um, You know, it... uh, I mean, I know it's meant to be a serious film and you know, obviously it got nominated for, for stuff. Uh, but I just think just calling a film Robert J. Is Real square is such a oh, I don't know. It just amused me. Um but yeah, so apparently he's in that. But yeah, he he's Cole he's Cole uh, Whittier, I think is his surname. They say it a couple of times. And his first attempt to kinda of get Debbie back is to intimidate Rick and say for five thousand dollars he'll like have he'll take Debbie and back. Furniture. And then he's st- well, this is the this is the thing. I don't know if this is meant to be, like, a gag about, uh, I don't know, I guess, like, the TV show over here that I would think of would be called The Generation Game. Uh, but I think in America, I think the closest thing would probably be Price is Right, where he's listing off, like, household items that he'll yeah. give in exchange. Well, let's make a deal,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, that's what it seems to be like, doesn't yep. it? It seems like he's, playing, he's going into this weird, like, game show patter. Uh, where he keeps like offering like a you know toaster oven and you know he just kind of lists kind of absurd things, and he's kind of doing it out in the open as well. I thought it's really weird because normally this type of scene, uh, which happens in a kind of comedy, would take place to one side so that you know there's no danger of Debbie hearing. But she kind of like towards the end, you know, as they're getting in the bus, Rick is like, oh yeah, he's trying to you know kind of dump you. It's you know, asked me to dump dump you for some money, and you know they just kind of drive off in the bus. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's just like, this is the, this is the start of what I would consider the main actual storyline of this film, which is Cole constantly trying to break up, uh, Debbie and Rick. Um, and you know, the bachelor party seems incidental to that particular story, but that's just the way I, you know, I saw it in the film. I don't know how you guys feel about like the Cole storyline. It's kind of the
1: way the film is built. Yeah. I think that's right. The bachelor party is, I mean, it's there, but it's not like everything that happens is in the bachelor party. Yeah,
2: I, I agree. Um, I, I like that Cole kind of lowballs Rick at first, only offering, his first offer is only $5,000, and immediately ups it to 10 grand, and like you said, all of the, the tires and the tools and the art, so, you know, you would think he would have started high instead of trying to lowball in such an effort. But yeah, he, he, he manages somehow to, for a bachelor party that he's not invited to, Cole really somehow manages to always track them down. Somehow he's in that alley after Gary leaves to hire the hookers. He just happens to somehow have known Gary was going to be in that alley at that time. So he can come up after Gary leaves and change the plans. He just happens to figure out what hotel room they're in later on. Uh, I, he, he's got incredible intelligence gathering. Cole.
0: Yeah. I, I did want to say, you know, uh, again, like uh, this is an eighties comedy. So they keep saying the words hookers over and over again. Um, but I think in this particular case, I think Gary is just looking for strippers rather than hookers, but he still has to go to a back alley pimp, which is just like, it's like, I I mean, you know, I'm, it's just, it's just kind of insane. Um, you know, obviously these days uh, I think sex workers would be treated completely differently. Um, but there is, a, there is a certain tone in this film that kind of treats pretty much all the sex workers as kind of disposable. And I don't know. I wasn't a fan of it. Um, but at the same time, I, I kind of get where they're coming from and, and what they're trying to do. But, you know, this film features two separate pimps. And, you know, uh, in the second case, they, they have a pimp who uh, they mistake for Gandhi, uh, which I have a feeling, you know, because obviously Gandhi was like a huge film, you know, the 1983 Oscars. I, I feel like maybe that's kind of probably like, a you know, like a bit of a joke about about that film. Um you know, that would kind of play really well a couple of years after it came out. But um, I I don't know. To me, I just, I just felt the treatment of the women was just a little bit kind of off. Um, And like you say, Cole just suddenly turns up and says, you know, uh, you know, my friends just come and hired, you know, a couple of your ladies. Don't send them there, send them here. Um, And his plan is to send them to the Thompson's house, um, you know, to try and discredit um rick which i don't fully understand that plan because i i don't i don't i don't think it kind of i I don't know like it's easy for rick to say that he didn't he didn't hire those women because he didn't gary did (laughs) so i don't know it feels like a, a plan that comes you know it falls apart pretty quickly if interrogated um but we finally arrive at the hotel where the titular party will be taking place And their friend Brad, who is from out of town, has flown three thousand miles. Uh, He enters standing on a guy's suitcase, (laughs) which is, uh, which I thought was a nice bit of business. Like he, like he's kind of tall, like really tall. And at first, I was like, "What is? What's going on with this guy? Is he like nine foot? Like what? He's like towering above everybody in the crowd." And then as he gets closer, and the crowd kind of disperses a bit, you see he's standing on some guy's suitcase, and the guy's like, "Get off my suitcase." And I thought, OK, that's like a bit of a weird introduction. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably best to kind of address uh, the bread of it. I think, you know, he he kind of he's at the party and he, he kind of keeps popping up from now and then. But I would rather kind of talk about his whole storyline, um, you know, in one piece, uh, because, you know, it is just kind of like a tiny subplot. Uh, But like he comes in and I think is he meant to be high on quaaludes? Is that like the among other things? Yeah, that seems to be what they're saying. And, you know, he's extremely depressed, but he's also extremely happy because he's high on drugs. And throughout the you know, once they actually get into the room, um, you know, he kind of he says that he loves everybody. And then, you know, they mention his wife and he's like, he hates her. And so that is that is the thing that then for the rest of the film he hates his wife and he's not happy, and so he attempts a few times to commit suicide, um including trying to drown himself, which I would say was quite a humorous. Like he kind of his head gets pulled up and they're like, "What are you trying to do?" And he's like, "I'm committing suicide," and it's, and it's like you're not dropping really dropping back in. Yeah, yeah. So and and then you know the kind of when he tries to you know slit his wrists, he With picks an electric, an electric razor. razor. Yep.
1: It makes your wrists kissably smooth. <laughs> yeah,
0: so uh, I don't know. I don't know how you guys felt about like putting this guy in this kind of suicide storyline into this comedy. It, it, like, I mean, I kind of get what they were trying to do. He's a contrast to like the rest of the guys who are all kind of, you know, up for partying. Um, but it just felt kind of inconsequential. I guess the payoff is at the very end of the film, um, you know, when he drives a bus through a wall. Yeah. Um, and then he's also driving away the couple once they're married. Yeah, I think he's, he's also supposed
1: yeah. to be. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, obviously Tom Hanks' brother is that way too. But I think he's supposed to be the "Hey, don't ever get married" guy. You know, he's the "This marriage is going to ruin you" guy. That's what I think he's. You know, because he's come from the East Coast, and his wife, his his wife, his marriage is terrible, and is maybe ending i think that might be part of why he's suicidal and so i think that's what he's supposed to do is to basically show say to tom hanks look marriage sucks don't do it yeah
2: don't don't become like me look at me i'm i'm trying to kill myself and i'm taking every drug on the planet and it's solely because my marriage is
0: miserable. I, I mean it, you know i feel like we already have that with stanley so adding brad in feels a bit like overkill um you know, but I—I I mean, I like—I said I like his introduction. I thought it was quite funny with him standing on the the suitcase and whatever. Um, and I don't think this actor has really done much since. Uh, his name is Bradford Bancroft, which is an awkward name. Yeah, he doesn't uh, even uh, have oh, an IMDb
1: picture, so that's usually a bad sign.
0: Yeah, you know, come on, Bradford, change it to something snappier. Um, but yeah I don't, I don't know I like I was kind of like okay I, like he's meant to be there as like a downer and you know the contrast to you know like the we're assuming that Rick wants to be married and it's like well don't don't get married but I feel with Stanley and Tina we kind of have that dynamic we don't really need the joke um you know kind of hammered home uh but again you know it's 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 kind of like the you know the saxophone and the thunderstorm scene I feel like it's something that could have been cut a little bit you know like I guess they they go for the rule of threes because they you know they have him trying to kill himself three times. So, <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know. It, it, to me, it just didn't feel completely well executed. Um, pardon the pun. Um, so yeah, I mean, for the rest of the party, you know, like uh, we we have what I would call shenanigans. Um, you know, and in particular, you know, in contrast, we have the the ladies having their party. Uh, whereas once they arrive at the hotel room, we have, of course, gentlemen, start your bonus which is such a like such an odd thing to say, because it's like, do I really want to be with my friends and for all of us to have erections? Like, is this a thing that I want? <laughs> like, is is that a thing that I want to happen? I don't think so. And then, of course, they, you know, they, they put on uh, they put on some pornography um, on a projector. And they've brought a screen, I assume. I don't think that this hotel room... It's a nice hotel room as well, it's worth saying. Uh, I don't think this hotel room comes with a screen. So they've brought the screen, they've brought the projector. This is a lot of effort. Uh, and then we find out you know from the girls that the joke is that uh, all of the explicit stuff has been cut out by them <laughs> so, so basically once it actually plays and i do love the way tom hanks says it you know he's like i usually like my smut a little bit more dirtier than this <laughs> like, you know like the fact that everything's been cut out is quite funny it's you know it's girls stripping off and then it goes to like it jump cuts to them in bed and then it jump cuts to them getting dressed again um but at the same time, even if there was pornography, why are these men in a room together cheering it on? Like, I don't understand. It's never an activity I've partook in myself. So, uh, you know, but then I've never really been to kind of any bachelor parties. And I certainly haven't been to any bachelor parties in America. I mean, fellas, have you been to bachelor parties where people are watching porn and cheering it <laughs> on?
2: Uh, I've been to bachelor parties. I've never been to bachelor parties that did that. But it did make me think of something uh, humorous here. I, I live in New York City and we have something you have the Museum of Sex here. And years ago, uh, my wife and I went there and there was one of the exhibits was something about the old stag film watching of back in like the 50s and 60s uh, that uh, college guys, guys in their 20s would get a movie and and, and get it to someone's house who had the wheel to wheel machine and would sit and watch it. And they tried to take you into what it would have been like to be there. And they were pumping in noise of the guys going, yeah, woohoo, yeah, all right, woohoo. This scene, that's straight out of what that was.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had my bachelor party. um, I actually, let me think. My bachelor party was kind of boring, but I had a friend of mine had his bachelor party, and I actually gave pornography away because I worked in a video store and had access to (laughs) basically VHS tapes. This is how long ago it was, VHS tapes, for very low prices, which is to say about two bucks a tape. And so... We gave away we gave away porn and we had uh, uh, we had a a dancer, but we did not watch porn movies.
0: So, yeah, Um, it seems weird. There is actually a joke in the pilot of Family Guy where they do the same thing, where they they're at a party and they're going to watch a film called Asablanca. And it starts up and then, you know, it's been recorded over with like something to do with the Statue of Liberty, like a documentary. And uh, Peter Griffin insists that, you know, they can't stop watching it. They've got to watch until, you know, the Statue of Liberty becomes erotic. Um So I, I don't know if that was inspired by this scene from Bachelor Party of guys sitting around watching pornography. But yeah, it's just it's such a weird. I mean, the fact that they've cut it all out, I guess, obviously, is to stop the film from getting, you know, like an X rating or, or an NC-17 or whatever, you know, like, um, so it's, you know, it's a funny way to kind of get around that, which I, I kind of like, because it, like, it's kind of a meta joke about how they can't show anything explicit, um, but instead they kind of do it as, like, a gag. Um, and so, you know, that I, thought that I thought that was kind of, like, fun, like, just as a, an in-joke, but at the same time puzzling. Um, you know, and then uh, Cole turns up, And he's upped the ante, and he offers uh, to give away his Porsche, um, you know, so that uh, Rick will will kind of, you know, break up with Debbie. And, of course, uh, because Rudy, dressed in his, um, you know, his car mechanic clothing, (laughs) is clearly a car mechanic, while they're talking to Cole, he runs down and he steals the Porsche. And then he returns it later on... um, with, uh, is it like a caracha Is like the yep. the kind of horn, and all yeah. it's all and jacked
1: so, up with flames and all kinds of stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah. So they kind of customize it, which I thought, you know, I thought that was a funny gag, uh, but at the same time, it feels like it's the only reason that Rudy is a car mechanic is so they can do that gag. Um, <laughs> you know, and the only reason he wears car mechanic overalls is so that everyone knows he's a car mechanic as a character, uh, because there's there's very little else to Rudy's character, if I'm honest um but you know i think the the guy who plays rudy uh barry diamond now let's see now that's a name you know bradford bancroft learn from barry diamond uh you know uh, i think he does an okay job with the guy but like i said there's barely anything there in terms of like a uh, like a character um you know he's, and he's, like later he's on he's the
1: belushi like, that's what his that job is to be kind of the rude you know yeah noisy guy
0: yeah and later on he'll stick his head into like a bowl of chips and then spit alcohol on one of the one of the female guests and it's like okay i mean like i guess that's party and he's like rolling around on the floor uh, so yeah you know he steals the car he you know he customizes the car Cole kind of runs after him to try and get the car back um, you know and uh, this like i think it's around is it around here where the strippers turn up to the to the party uh, along with um, along with Stan's wife, Tina. Yes, um, yes, they come up, the, yeah. uh,
1: the, the strippers come up to the door while Tina is standing waiting for them to let the door, to open the door.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so they just kind of come in with Tina, which I, I like that nobody kind of questions it. They're yeah. like, these two ladies just kind of come in uh, and then as the kind of, you know, the, the bridal shower is going on, um, you know they, they, are like okay. I guess it's it's one of these types of gigs again, which I, I kind of like. That you know they've, uh, you know then they don't discriminate. They'll appear at bachelor parties. They'll appear at bridal showers. It doesn't matter what the the gender of the crowd is. They're willing to you know get to work. Yep. Um, and of course you know in kind of typical eighties, I don't know. It's almost cliched that they're kind of all in leather and they've got a whip, and the other one's got like a Hitachi wand. And, you know, we don't see what they do, but we just see horrified reactions from everybody in the room, Yeah, um, which I they guess keep is watching, the... though.
2: They don't turn. Away. Yes.
0: No, this is it. They don't they don't they don't tell them to stop they, nobody kind of jumps in to get in the way. They just let them do their show. Uh, so I guess <laughs> somebody's enjoying it, uh, if not, you know, the two performers um but yeah they kind of fall they kind of fall out the bottom of the frame as they kind of um you know get to work on each other and then everybody's just got these horrified reactions and they keep on watching and you know they keep turning away um, the mother particular doesn't she? She's kind of like keeps turning away, <laughs> and it's like, I, I don't know. Uh, so kind of as a as a revenge, they decide they're going to go to a strip club, and so of course they go to a strip club where the the Chippendales are, and then uh, their friend uh, Michael gives the boys a call and says, you wouldn't guess who's just walked in here, and uh, this is where the boys then go to kind of I don't know plant They some leave revenge. their I'm own quite...
1: yeah they leave their own party to go and <laughs> get uh, make a joke.
0: Yeah, this is it. Yeah, they they, they like they, they meet. What I like as well is that um you know, although this film has some kind of, you know, extremely 80s attitudes, I do like that when they go and meet like they go to the, the back room of the club and they meet with one of the dancers who is known as Nick the Dick. And when he takes his penis out, I like the kind of Tom Hanks and um Adrian Zemed are kinda of like clapping and yeah. they're like well done. Yes. Like, and uh, Stan puts like his pipe in his it, mouth. Yes. So <laughs> Yeah, they're kind of like they're kind of like admiring him and being like, yeah, that's you know that is a very nice penis, you know, congratulations on that. And I just yes, I always I, lo- I
1: like that. they're not- I love the thump when he puts his when he puts it on the bread.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. I, 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 I mean you know it's it's kind of a bright spot that they aren't they aren't kind of like recoiling or anything. They're not disgusted. They're just like yeah, that guy has got a very nice penis, and we're having him put it in a bun um, so that the mother, future mother-in-law. Yep. Who I'm assuming has never seen what a hot dog looks like. I mean, is that the footlong <laughs> and then some? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I, I don't know. It's like I understand the gag, but obviously it's all done. It's you know, they obviously can't have like an erect penis on screen, so it's all kind of done where it's like hidden. But at the same time, it's like I, I you know, I I don't know how shielded you'd have to be that you see a penis in a bun and you think that's a hot dog like it just i don't know um but yeah she kind of keeps grabbing on it as well which yeah. is the, i guess is the kind of gag she's like is she keeps at trying it to take and it's just the sort plate. of moving yeah. along with it yeah which i uh, and then later on she's like she's looking at her hand saying i had a stranger's wiener in this and um so I guess that's the payoff of that gag. But yeah, I thought it was funny that like this is their revenge is just to send a guy out there with a penis and a bun. Like they're not they're not like angry at the ladies for coming to the strip club. Like they're not judging them. No, that's just a juvenile joke. So I thought that was refreshing. You know, I was like, well, you know, there were other ways that this could have gone that would have been worse. Um, and the ladies enjoy the show. You know, and the guys who were dancing. I don't think are actual Chippendales, but you know, they kind of mention the Chippendales, and you know, they're okay dancers. They're no Magic Mike XXL. So. Um, You know, there's no kind of uh, Channing Tatum vaulting himself off of various things, Um, you know, but I I don't know. I just I kind of I kind of I don't know. I I just thought it was kind of a a, a nicely played uh, scene. Uh, And then, of course, they get spotted by the by the cousin, uh, Eileen, and then they kind of run out of there. Um, And then, you know, because the other hookers went to the house and did their show. Uh, which evidently people were disgusted with, but at the same time couldn't look away. Uh, Gary goes to get more hookers from the uh, the Gandhi pimp, and then he has like an enforcer, Milt, uh, who's Milt. <laughs> yeah, and I I I mean I feel like I should know this guy from somewhere because he lo- I mean, he looks like a wrestler, but I I'm like you know only only guys who are like seven foot, uh, you know who look who look like that would be. I don't know, it feels like wrestling, or maybe an ex-basketball player or something. It's, I, 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 I can't even, I do not even know that I caught his, um, looked up who the actor was, but I was like, I'm sure that sh- guy should be someone, but um, I don't know if he is anyone. I certainly didn't recognize him. I know, John, that you're a wrestling fan. Did yeah. you recognize uh, him as His name
1: is just... John Bloom, and he's seven yeah. foot four, and uh, most of his character stuff are, he did a lot of kind of, you know, tall Khan, or uh he was in the hills have eyes too as a character called the reaper and he played frankenstein in al adamson's dracula versus frankenstein which is um terrible would be too nice a word for it but (laughs) yes so generally he's just a very big guy
0: OK, because I because I, I thought he had the look of like an 80s wrestler. And I was like, should I recognize this guy from somewhere? Like because the camera kept hanging on him and they kept like I mean, I guess just because he's really tall and it played against, you know, everybody being kind of. Yeah. No, the, the
1: weird thing is he was an accountant and Al Adamson talked him into <laughs> acting.
0: Oh, there you go. Oh, OK. So, well, yeah, there you go. So he, he's just a very tall accountant. Um, But yeah, so that that's the guy who will go and retrieve the hooker's. Um should should the guys not return them in the, the allotted time. And this is where the party starts. Um I think we're almost an hour into this podcast, and that's accurate for how long it took in the film to get to, to, get get the, to the party. party. That's so, right. <laughs> so so if you're if you're listening in real time and not sped up in any way, this is how long it took. Um and so the party finally kind of begins, a band turns up and does a couple of songs and uh, Adrian Zemed you know plays the you know plays the the most recent you know hit single off his album I, I was just like this is uh, people are kind of like dancing about um there is some toplessness uh, involved people just get topless in front of everybody in a hotel room while this band is playing um and I can't remember what the name of the band was I did see it in the credits Angel but, and the Reruns uh, I don't think they're anybody are they really No, uh, no they're they not. Ki- they kind of seem like a go-go's type Band to me, I mean that's the feeling I got from them. But yeah, they were just kind of like a you know a, a punk, a punk punk group um, playing live music at a bachelor party in a in hotel. hotel. <laughs> that's right. And uh, I haven't mentioned it before now, but obviously there is the kind of running thing of the hotel manager getting annoyed by these guys um, and having complaints. And I think having like a full band in your room is probably going to draw more attention. So you I don't think. know why, I don't know why they just didn't. Uh, well, they just didn't make do with like putting some records on. Um, but yeah, we also see that there's a an assortment of drugs that have been laid out. Uh, someone has chopped up some lines of cocaine for everybody. So you know, I, I guess that was just the '80s. Um, and throughout this, we kind of see, we we get more and more people turning up. Strangers just kind of turn up because they heard the noise and they're like, "Can we come into this party?" Uh, so the room kind of gradually gets fuller and fuller. Uh, we then get what I would say is, you know, I I don't know, I mean, it's the 80s, but still, uh, Gary uh, sees a lady that he likes, um, and, you know, uh, this is where we get into the, the kind of transphobia. This is probably the thing that maybe soured me a little bit on the film as it was happening, because I could kind of see where it's going, and I'm like, I know what's, like, you know, he goes off to the room with uh, with the person who is later identified as Tim, although I think in the credits it's identified as she-Tim, yes which is... Yeah, so, you know, Gary goes off with this uh, this uh, female-presenting person and later on, after, after the deed is done, he goes into the toilet and he sees that Tim is peeing standing up and he immediately kind of tears his shirt, much like Hulk Hogan would do in the 80s, and screams at the top of his lungs and then runs off and showers and then just keeps scrubbing himself and scrubbing his genitals. Um, And I'm like, I wasn't keen on Gary to start off with, but this certainly is not endearing him to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's Um, kind of the joke you expect in the 80s. I mean, honestly, this, I mean, it's comparatively light to a lot of other movies, but it's definitely, you know, you expect a trans joke of some kind, you know, generally in a lot of these movies.
2: Yeah, I mean it's obviously a scene that even ten years later wouldn't have been in a movie. Uh you know, it's not even that it's you know, in, in today in the year we're recording, it's you know it, it's it's definitely a scene straight out of the eighties screwball sex comedy. Um you know obviously it's it's not a scene that has aged well, it's not a character that has aged well, um, and you wouldn't see it now.
0: And also I have a feeling that Pat Proft and Nail Israel have gone to this well a few more times because I think the joke appears in at least one of the Naked Gun films and also um, in one of the Police Academy films. as a similar joke.
1: I think you're right um, about that, yep.
0: Yeah. I mean, Police Academy also had the uh, the gay bar jokes, um, but I think those are actually... I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say they're not as bad because it seems like you know people are more accepting of the the patrons of that bar than they are um of you know uh, trans people so um but yeah you know it's i don't know it, it, like it's the thing is as well is it's not even it's not even inventive it's like such an obvious joke from the moment it happens like you know the they play like romantic music like the kind of you know, the floor clears and they kind of lock eyes on each other. And from that moment, I was like, I know where this is This is going to finish in like 10 minutes time once we actually get to the punchline. And it's not a funny punchline. So, um, but yeah, so if anybody is watching the, the film and wasn't aware of that, I mean, you know, you listen to me describe the entire plot. So it's a bit, I, I think it'd be a bit odd if you hadn't seen the film. But, you know, it, it It was one of those scenes where I was like, OK, you know, this is this is extremely 80s. Um, and then we kind of we finally get back to the main plot. While all this kind of party stuff is going on, the main plot has kind of been lost a little bit. Um, there's a lot of very bad dancing from Tom Hanks. I should say that as well. I should really point that out to people. Prepare yourself. Trigger warning. Bad dancing from Tom Hanks. It's terrible. Like, he... Uh, like, it seems like he has no rhythm. I, it's it's like such a weird... And they really focus on him dancing. Dancing up a storm. Um, but I guess, you know, dance like no one's watching. Uh, even if you are an extremely crowded party. Uh, But we kind of get back to him, and uh, Tracy turns up. Tracy, who we've never heard talk of, but apparently was kind of like the one that got away, uh, and is played by uh, Monique Gabrielle, who I, for some reason, thought was a Playmate of the Month, but she turns out she's a Penthouse Pet of the Month for December 1982.
2: And also just a a B-movie actress of, of the era.
0: Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of the biggest thing that she ever did, and um, you know, she is, you know, clothed or not clothed, as she is very quickly in this film, stunningly beautiful, much like Tony Catain Like, why why are these extremely beautiful women throwing themselves at Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. um,
2: <laughs> before he was Tom Hanks? Yeah,
0: yeah, this is a thing. So, uh, yeah, Monique Gabrielle shows up, and of course, you know, she immediately disrobes, and she is basically kind of trying to tempt him, Rick. This, I mean, this is the only special effects that are in the film, uh, I would say apart from the practical effects of a dead donkey later on. And um, Rick kind of imagines Tawny Katane's head on her body. Um, and then he imagines um, Mr. Thompson, is it? Is that, is that the next head? So, yes. He goes for a few different heads, yeah. And then Rudy. And then also, yeah, Rudy kind of shows up on there as well. So, um, you know, and he kind of exits the bedroom pretty quickly and, you know, O'Neill is like, you know, tell me about it. And he kind of he kind of pretends that they've had sex and then he goes, no, no, I'm lying to you, O'Neill. I didn't, I didn't do anything. Um, and so, you know, kind of his, his chastity is kind of the most important plot point in this entire film, um, as we'll find out in a few minutes. Once the, the, the other party turns up, uh, because the other party have decided to get revenge in the most practical way possible, which is by dressing, dressing like, like hookers, hookers. Yep. and turning up to the party. Um, and I, I, I don't know how you. I mean, I, I think like, like I said, you know, like the, the stuff with uh, Nick the Dick, I thought was well handled, and I think this is kind of probably in t- in terms of the film, uh, like the funniest, the funniest use of hookers. Like everything else is just get hookers so we can have sex with them, whereas this kind of like we're gonna dress like hookers and then we're gonna turn up to the party. I don't know what their plan was from that point on. Uh, because it gets derailed pretty quickly. But, I, you know, I thought the ladies kind of looked, you know, they looked apart the and and, I, you know, they're all kind of wearing wigs. Where they got these wigs? I don't know. Um, you know, and they're all kind of dressed in lingerie, and once they get to the lobby of the hotel, one of them is like, you know, act like hookers, and they all start walking in a really weird way, which is just like, I thought that was a nice kind of gag. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know how you guys feel about this kind of weird little subplot that suddenly kind of, I guess it's just a way to kind of get Debbie It's to get them to the party, the
1: basically, yeah.
0: Yeah, but I, I don't know how you guys felt about about this particular storyline.
2: I don't know why they had to trust like hookers to go to the party. They could have just shown up to the party.
1: <laughs> well, I think the idea was they were trying to infiltrate the party, maybe, and they didn't want to get caught. Although, I mean, obviously, if nothing else, as soon as they saw Tina, they would know it was Tina. I mean, let's be honest.
2: Yeah, I, I, there's a there's a funny psych egg that I don't I'm not even sure. I would love to have been there on set when they filmed the scene of the elevator door closing after Milt gets in the elevator with them because the elevator door closes and the camera specifically lingers on Milt's eyes moving to watch the elevator door close. And this is one of those things that for some reason has always cracked me up and I don't know why it cracked me up and I don't know why it's even included in the movie. But it it just does for some reason.
0: Yeah, I guess maybe that's because he's not like a professional actor so maybe it's just something that like he couldn't help but, that like kind of do. <laughs> uh, you know, like, most professional actors would kind of be in character and they'd be in the moment, but he's just like, the elevator doors are closing. <laughs> it's just like, okay. Uh, I guess that's what goes through Milt's head. But, yeah, Milt turns up uh, to retrieve hookers. The girls insist they are hookers, and so he then <laughs> takes them to a different hotel room where they run into what I would like to call a racist joke. Yes. Um, yes. Where... Japanese tourists with cameras, uh, but also the idea of like oversexed Japanese men yeah. is kind of it's kind of like a gag in the eighties, isn't it? So um, yeah, so like there's this part, and there and the guys are, the guys in there like there's a bunch of Asian men, and they're already I don't think they specifically says they're Japanese until the, the, some of the subtitles say this is better than sushi, don't they? So I guess that's that's how we find out they're Japanese, but like they're already all in their underwear, like ready to. Get going with the orgy, <laughs> like out in the open. Like there's no there's no stopping them. They're already at that point, um, and so of course the ladies try to negotiate their way out of there, um, and eventually uh, the way they get out is that uh, Eileen. And I think this might be the final time we see her in the film until we get to the wedding at the end. Yeah, she sacrifices uh, herself. <laughs> that was exactly what I put in my notes. I put Eileen sacrifices herself,
1: <laughs> and doesn't she make a she makes a Pearl Harbor joke or something? Doesn't she?
0: Says she bonsai. Says, bonsai. Yeah, okay. she says yeah. she says Bonsai as she jumps on the bed. Um but yeah, so I guess she's uh, I don't know, she's into taking on multiple partners at once. So like I I mean I assume that the Japanese guys are comfortable with seeing each other naked because they were already in their underwear ready to start an orgy, so uh yes.
1: yeah. I mean These gentlemen had started their boners.
0: <laughs> yes, this is yes. They obviously understood the the rules of the film. Um yeah, so I I mean Uh, kind of the the subtitled gags aren't I wouldn't say are particularly funny and you know there is a bit of a kind of stereotype thing here but I would say that kind of the payoff of it is at least kind of a humorous use of uh, Deborah Harmon who plays Eileen you know for most of the film she's just been like miserable and smoking but now we see that she is I guess some kind of nymphomaniac and she's willing to kind of have sex with all these guys uh, rather than spend the evening hunting down Uh, Rick, which I, you know, given the choice, would you rather take part in a, a, you know, an orgy, or would you go hunting around for Rick, who's a person that you don't even like? I mean, I think from Eileen's position, it's it's fairly an easy choice, uh, fairly simple. Yeah, but I do like that she kind of she's like holds the bedroom door shut because like they're like oh gentlemen in here let's start the orgy and then she holds the bedroom door shut like heroically as if they're forcing it on the other side and as soon as all the ladies go she just literally opens it up and is like let's get this on, um, so I thought that was like a, a nice little kind of touch uh, to her character, basically disappearing for the rest of the film until she shows up at the wedding, um, uh, but yeah and then uh, while that's going on we have this really weird thing where Cole. Has gone and got a crossbow uh, because, of course, he hunts. Because and know.
2: put on camouflage, I might add. Yeah, which uh, <laughs> I this know is it.
0: <laughs> I know. I put I put a note in my notes which said a col goes camo, and I don't even know why he's doing it. Like, why is he doing this? Like, he's in a he's in a hotel room opposite the other hotel room. He's not camouflaged at all. He's so <laughs> obvious that it takes the guys three seconds to figure out who he is and where he is. Um, but I did like this gag with the crossbows. Yes, which, like the crossbow bolts coming in. I thought this is one of the like funnier gags like and it shows off kind of Tom Hanks' comic timing. Yes. Where right. like uh, th- where you know, um the Gandhi pimp has turned up and <laughs> a crossbow bolt suddenly appears in the wall and he's like I'm, he runs away. I'm getting milt. <laughs> yeah, he runs away from that situation and I like how kind of Tom Hanks and I think is it o'neill that are stand that are standing next to the crossbow bolt that yes. yeah. comes in. Yeah and tom hanks is like what is this <laughs> and then the second one fires and he goes and what's that and i just i like the timing of it is so is so well done it's it's one of those things where on screen you're like oh this, this guy's a star like he's he's so like he's got the timing so perfectly you know he's just so like he manages to kind of pull it off um, and then you know they kind of look across and they literally see into the hotel room <laughs> where where cole is standing with like a crossbow and it's like it's just, uh, why was he camouflaged? He's, uh, I don't know. And, he's like, um, and they're like, get the, so, hook,
1: get the hookers in a circle. And they <laughs> they, uh, yeah. they send Tracy over to his room.
0: Well, they, they go with Tracy, don't they? Like three of the boys yes, go with Tracy. Her, yes. Because two of the boys are already off on a different mission, which we'll get into in a moment. But yeah, so the, they, get, they go over with Tracy. She kind of, um, you know, uh, goes, she basically opens the door and says, make love to me. <laughs> and he lets and, her
2: in. A yeah. random woman is there. He just like oh
0: okay sure why not <laughs> uh i mean i guess you know pre AIDS scare there was no there was nothing stopping <laughs> you from just you know that's one of the things that this film has it's in that brief window where quaaludes was still legal and aids wasn't a major problem uh you know or hadn't become you know like a major news thing um so yeah i mean it's, he just kind of lets this this random woman in and and then a, you know a few minutes later Well, not even a few minutes. Like it's literally like about thirty seconds later, the guys like kind of break in. They tie him up in bed sheets and they hang him out the window. And then, and then this is where we get the cameo from uh, Pat Proft, Um, and he says, and I mean, I guess it's probably the hackiest joke in the entire film. Where he (laughs) says, "There's a there's a a lovely moon out tonight," and he opens at the window and we see Cole's, uh, you know, cheeks pressed against the window. Um, and he screams and the woman he's with screams and then Cole screams and that kind of continues a little bit um and i guess they kind of they go back to like the car and they kind of relax but obviously it's uh, is it a soft top is that why or is it, or is just got I, like, think, uh, opened, I think it's uh, got the, sun the roof sunroof yeah. yeah sunroof yeah so the sunroof is open and of course uh, you know the the sheets give way and uh, Cole falls down and as Pat Proft goes to kiss his wife I am assuming that's what, what that's what the situation is meant to be. Um the behind of Cole is is between them and then they both start screaming again. Um so you know Cole is then he manages to get his his himself kind of off the car I guess and he gets into the hotel just as Mr Thompson is arriving there. And Mr Thompson and no, no sorry Mr Thompson has been there a while because there's like some show in town that's in the some convention or something and he's like You know, they kind of let him know, and obviously he left the house because all the ladies were there. And yeah, he's giving a speech, um, I think. Yeah, so Mr. Thompson ends up running into Cole. Cole gives him the room number. He goes up to the room, um, and then he he gets like. He's about to kind of, you know, blow the cover of this party, which I don't know. Like, it's so noisy. I don't know how people haven't already alerted the police. Um, But he's about to kind of, you know, uh, end the party. And they say, you know, oh, Mr. Thompson, go through to this room. There's a phone you can use there. Um, And, of course, you know, Rick is like, what are you doing? Um, And then uh, O'Neill kind of, like, gets his camera and a gaggle of hookers. And (laughs) they go in and they tie up Mr. Thompson and start taking pictures of him in compromising positions. Um, so I guess they're going to use that as blackmail. Should he w- try to call the, the 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 wedding off or something? I I don't know. Um, but you know that leads to some kind of funny kind of I guess, I, I don't know. In the eighties, people always thought of uh, any exotic sex as being handcuffing somebody to a bed and pouring a ball gag in their mouth. Pretty much. And dressing dressing them in leather. So that's exactly what happens. All of that happens to Mister Thompson, uh, which is discovered later on by his daughter. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, we, we finally get, uh, you know, I guess kind of what we've been waiting for, which is, uh, for Debbie to kind of show up, uh, or is that, is that after the donkey show? I think it's after the donkey Debbie's show. Debbie's after the donkey. It's after the donkey. Yes. And I, I, how could I skip this? Because I feel it's one of the things that this film is more notorious for, uh, which is, uh, <laughs> is it Riko and Stan have got the donkey? Yes. Uh, yeah. So Riko and Stan show up with the donkey in disguise. As a donkey. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how why they thought they needed to do... I mean, I guess, how do you get a donkey through the, the lobby, but they just put a disguise on it, and then it turns up in the room. Um, and everybody is very excited to see what is later described by Mr. Thompson as bestiality. Um,
2: Although but, I love how he pronounces it as bestiality. Yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, So, and then Miss Desiree turns... I don't know where Miss Desiree came from, because... She wasn't with Raikou and Stan. She just kind of turns up and starts stripping. Um, And, you know, the climax of her show, I guess, is to have sex with the donkey. Yes. Now, I was only aware that this was a thing that was in this film due to Kevin Smith. And in Clerks 2, they kind of do the same thing. (laughs) where uh, They have what is called a donkey show. uh, But except in that case, uh, it is not... It is not a woman who is having sex with a donkey. Or should I say the donkey having sex with a woman. It is a man having sex with a donkey. And unlike in this film, uh, where we don't actually get to the sex act, in Clerks 2, they go through with it. And apparently Kevin Smith, when writing Clerks 2, he was always disappointed that in Bachelor Party, they never got to the climax of Miss Desiree's (laughs) show. And so he was determined to write a scene in a film one day where he would have a donkey show.
1: And we actually see the donkey show.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, except this time, instead of the donkey, you know, having sex, the donkey's had sex with. And that was the twist that he kind of put on it. But yeah, so I was aware that there was a donkey show in here, but obviously also aware uh, from Kevin Smith's disappointment that... It gets cut off pretty quick. And it gets cut off pretty quick in an amusing manner, which is the donkey takes all the drugs. The drugs are light out. And you see the donkey snorting cocaine, like <laughs> like kind of going forward and make... I mean, obviously, it's some kind of puppet or something. And making kind of like the snorting gesture. And I was like... And then eating all oh, the pills. Okay. Um, and, you know, from all the many drugs that he's taken, uh, the donkey kind of just dies, like keels over and dies. And, uh, you know, Stan being a doctor is like, I'm a doctor, which... When a donkey is dead on the floor, it doesn't really make any difference if you're a doctor. Uh, you know, you need a veterinarian and there is no veterinarian in sight. And so, of course, immediately the guys pick the donkey up by each of its legs and put it into a lift. And they just leave it to kind of go up and down in the lift. And it, and people keep kind of just stumbling upon this dead donkey, including uh, the ladies and also uh, the hotel manager. Um And yeah. And then, you know, after after Elaine has freed all the other ladies, Debbie arrives. She's kind of in disguise, but it's such an obvious disguise (laughs) that everybody immediately sees through. And this is where, you know, uh, is it Gary goes over to him and says, you know, go into the back room. Um, You know, they're like, act like you don't know her. And then, yeah, so he he directs her to the bedroom. And then, of course, uh, you know, Tom Hanks comes in pretending again not to know who it is. And then kind of jumps on her, and she turns on the light, and she's angry. And I, you know, this is obviously kind of the—I feel like the payoff for the thunderstorms and saxophone scene earlier in the film, where they kind of have an argument. Um, and I think the funniest thing about this is Tom Hanks kind of goes back into the party, and just jumps, you know, as high as he can, and he just yells to everybody, he's like, "Hey, hey, hey! Have I had sex with anybody in this room?" And they're all like, "No." no. And and you know, that's that's kind of the thing where it's like he's like, "See, you know." I haven't had sex with anybody in here, you know, so why are we even arguing? Um, And then, you know, kind of before that can get resolved, the police arrive. um, And I did like, I mean, this probably was my favorite gag in the entire film, which is the hotel manager saying to the police, like break it down boys. And they get, they kind of, they go back as about to do it. And he goes, wait, 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 I got keys. And he just like lets them in. And I was like, even in my head I was thinking why are you telling him to break in a door you're the hotel manager just open it up and then of course they did that gag and I thought that was funny uh, but yeah so I mean how do you guys feel about you know the kind of the ruse that Debbie does and the kind of you know the kind of counter ruse um, you know in terms of like how that plays out
1: it's kind of amusing when uh, Tom Hanks just sort of comes in and then just sort of jumps on her and goes Bruh! you know like just messing around with her
2: well I think that Gary is the one that kind of sort of screws Rick over because he says, you know, the the groom hasn't had you yet. And so that's sort of what, you know, really plants it in Debbie's mind, like, oh, okay, that's what's going on here. You know, all Rick said was get her to go in the back room. That's all, you know, he didn't... Gary kind of kicks it up a notch there in in what he says to her to get her in the back room. There must have been a a less risque way to get her back
0: there somehow. Yeah. Damn you, Gary. Once again, my (laughs) least favorite person in this film, Gary. You know... Seriously, Gary, get it together. Um, Yeah, so I mean, you know, we then kind of get, I don't know if you could call this a classic 80s thing, but like everybody kind of gets confused and, you know, there's a lot of people running from one place to another. People are being arrested. Uh, You know, the spousal abuse taking place between Tina and Stan. (laughs) She just starts like (laughs) punching him. Uh, And I think that's where their story kind of finishes as well, isn't it? That's the last we see of them is just them fighting. And physically, Tina just like punching away at Stan. Um, Everybody else kind of gets out of the hotel through the fire exit. Cole grabs Debbie, takes her into the nearby cinema, and then we get this kind of extended 3D film gag, uh, which, you know, like... uh, This particular time, obviously, there was a tiny resurgence in the early 80s of, like, 3D stuff, you know, going through to, like, stuff like Jaws 3D. So, uh, you know, it's... uh, uh, But it was obviously with the, you know, the different coloured eyes and everything... Um, and then, you know, these days, obviously, we've got modern kind of 3D, um, which I would say looks better than the kind of the two-color 3D. Oh, very much. Uh, yeah. And so on the screen we have, is it Battle Beyond the Stars, I think, that is playing. playing?
1: Uh, there's um, some clips from it, but then the, the rest of it is just a movie that they made up for the scene.
0: And I think I what I would say about this as well is I like the way... The, the kind of the 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 audience members commenting and saying this is the best 3D I've ever seen as these two guys fight at the front of the screen, is I mean that's a that's a mildly amusing gag, uh, but what I like is they match the fight sequences on the screen and you know there's like a kick that that gets done and I think Tom Hanks kicks, um, kicks uh, Cole and then there's like a you know a punch and and like they kind of mimic exactly what's happened on the screen and then you know when he kind of knocks Cole out the character on the screen gets knocked out and then he goes to kiss Debbie and the characters on the screen also kiss and so that was some nice kind of coordination. Um, you know and then we keep cu- we keep cutting back to the audience members saying, this is the best 3D I've ever seen um, and the one woman going oh, it's not that great and then something happens she's like, oh she this. Yeah <laughs> yeah so it's like uh, and it finishes with the climax of Brad driving the bus through the wall in another attempt to kill himself. Uh, that is the rule of threes. That's the third time he tries it. And then that just abruptly cuts to the wedding. And, you know, uh, the, it, it wraps up pretty quick. You know, we're just at the wedding. Um, for some reason, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe in the 80s this was humorous, but um, Tom Hanks, like, runs off and grabs a whisk. And he, and he starts saying, you know, we're married now. It's all legal. Uh, and I'm like, I don't know what he's going to do with that whisk. I just. That was,
1: uh, I think that's a reference to. Isn't there a scene early in the movie where he is. Puts Debbie on the stove and he has the um the spatula.
0: Yep. Yeah, I skipped over that because that scene really wasn't that important. Like he just he's in the kitchen, he can't cook. Yeah. You know they go to have sex on the table. It's like okay, uh, yeah. So I guess it's a callback to that. But again, that's th- that scene kind of completely left my memory. So not a very effective callback. Um, you know. But yeah, so they they kind of run off to the bus and you know they they get in and the uh, you know the bus driver turns out to be Brad who seems to be mentally unstable, so I don't know why they've... Out of all the friends, I don't know why they've hired him to be the, the driver. Um, you know, and then on the back... What did it say on the back? So just having the sex. Yeah, yeah, instead of just married, just having sex. And as they drive off, the theme from Bachelor Party by Oingo Boingo plays. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I think this is. A, I you know there was like a there was a theme from Splash that was that was in Splash. Uh, there was a theme from Mazes of Monsters that was in Mazes of Monsters. So Tom Hanks is doing well in terms of getting themes. Um, and I know that the opening of Money Pit has a song about building a house. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I, I know what's going on with Tom Hanks films in the eighties and themes. But yes, yeah, so that is the theme. And that's where it finishes. The you know there is no kind of no post credit gags or anything like that. They just they just go with you know the film finishing. Um, something I should mention as well, you know, uh, there's a there was a joke in here in this film about the World Trade Center where they talk about the World Trade Center opening. Um, and in in both of Tom Hanks' previous films, in Splash, uh, there was a lot of shops of the of the World Trade Center because obviously they're in uh, they're in New York and they're on Liberty Island, so you can see it. Um, and then also the climax of monsters and maces uh maces and monsters. I never maces know which way of it goes. maces and monsters uh it takes place on the world on top of the world Trade Center and they they also mentioned Tolkien as well, so there's a whole like kind of a two towers thing uh twin towers type thing. so yeah i I don't know what's going on with Tom Hanks and the world Trade Center but in the eighties I don't know they're like uh I don't know, peanut butter and jam. Um, it, yeah, so I, I don't know. It's just it, it's just it's just weird that it's referenced in in a film after him, you know, featuring it in the last two films. Um, so yeah, how do we feel about this kind of wedding ending? It feels kind of a bit a bit kind of you know we've got the kind of the on the on the groom side we have a lot of people who are like a bit more down market and making noise, and on the bride's side we have people who are a bit more posh and a bit more kind of put together. Uh, and again, like I said, like all her friends are women and all his friends are men, so they're just either side of the bride and groom as a groomsman and just bridesmaids
1: right
0: yeah so it feels a bit of a kind of like quick ending in terms of but again you know the film is called bachelor party not long wedding or whatever I don't <laughs> know, I don't know what, you'd call, like, <laughs> what you'd call it
1: I mean it's effective it does what it's supposed to do you know I mean you weren't expecting them to be running off and you know we weren't going to get like a animal house postscript with you know so and so did this and so and so did that you know
2: yeah, I mean, it could be a situation where maybe they just, you know, how do we end a movie called Bachelor Party that is about a bachelor party that devolves into a car chase? Uh, just, you know, we got have them get married and show that they're happily in. Have a wedding.
0: Be done with it. Yeah, and I think it, for the second film in a row, uh, Tom Hanks has got a an unnecessary sequel, not starring him or connected to him in any way. Uh, bachelor Party Two. Uh, was part of the TV series Project Greenlight, which is the weirdest kind of... I did not realise ...about that. how that happened. Wow. Yeah, and it was not meant to be a sequel. It was meant to be a straight remake of the film. Um, and even the kind of cover for the kind of the DVD looks a little bit like the cover for for this. But in, in, it ended up being Bachelor Party 2 The Last Temptation, which I don't know if that's meant to be like a reference to the Mel Gibson film that was kind of... Passion of Christ was out around that time when it came out, 2008, so I don't know, maybe it's just a, a passing reference to that. Um, but yeah, I, it's just I've never seen it. I don't know if either of you no. guys were even aware it existed. No, never felt that, I, that was necessary.
1: Uh, I, I actually looked at the IMDB for it today to see what it was and um, the sp- plot summary which is incomplete but seemed alright, uh, it does kind of read as a remake in a way except the difference is that instead of the ex-boyfriend trying to ruin the uh the wedding it's the cousin of the bride who is also the person who sets up the bachelor party and uh they go from i think it's like cleveland or somewhere they go to florida for this bachelor party and uh the difference what appeared to be the difference in the plot was that uh the ladies do not get involved. The only thing that the lady... According to the, the plot synopsis on IMDb, the only thing that the ladies were trying to do was to get a bachelorette party of their own going, and it wasn't working out too well, but that's about it.
0: Yeah, I should say as well, written by Neil Israel and Pop, Pat Proft, uh, basically they were rewriting their script um, and kind of updating it, and then it ended up turning into a, a sequel rather than a remake. Um, so, yeah... Um, I I I mean, it's just... I, I mean, after Splash 2, which kind of, uh, you know, brought back... I, I mean, I'm feeling like we should get unnecessary sequels to most Tom Hanks films from now on, you know. <laughs> uh, the Man the man with Two Red Shoes? I mean, that's just a normal man, isn't it? Well, um, well the funny thing you know, about like, that
1: is that actually there actually was a sequel to the French original that that movie's based on.
0: Well, we will talk more about that next week because uh, that is the... That is the film for next week. And you're returning as a guest for that, John. I am. We can get into that. Uh, But for the moment, let's rate this film. And obviously the rating system we have here is T. Hanks or no T. Hanks. Um, And I would have to say, you know, aside from the things that I've mentioned that kind of were a little bit off put in, uh, in terms of the kind of subplot with um, Gary. uh, Again, I didn't like Gary. So, you know, who cares? Uh, I would say T. Hanks in this case. You know, I think it was enjoyable enough. There were a few kind of funny gags. Uh, Tom Hanks with his kind of patter was really funny. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I, I unlike some kind of, you know, upcoming films where uh, I don't think I give a T. Hanks. Um, you know, I think this kind of works as a comedy, um, you know, and I think this is the mode that kind of Tom Hanks is in. I've called this part of the podcast up until Joe versus the Volcano. Uh, comedy Hanks because it feels like that's what he was just doing is kind of concentrating on uh, on mostly comedies even with Nothing in Common which is a dramedy uh, you know he's mostly doing comedy stuff and I think that's the, in the 80s that's the stuff that really really worked for him uh, I think obviously he realised himself that he needed to kind of adapt and move away from that um, and I think you know he kind of he kind of did that. Although you know I still love the the sea lion laugh in, in Monkey in Money Pit when he gets stuck in the hole. and He's just kind of laughing at the top of his lungs. It's like such a great moment. Uh, but yeah, I I you know I enjoyed this film. A lot, apart from you know some reservations that I had about some kind of minor you know story story beats. And uh, you know there was just quite so much use of the word hooker in this film that it's just like it felt a tiny bit demeaning. But I would still recommend it. I'd still say T. Hanks um so fellas i'm going to say eric your rating
2: uh definitely t hanks this actually um <laughs> this might not be a popular theme this is my favorite tom hanks movie uh probably because i watched it so much as a kid i am um, i it's just stupid fun you know it just you know you just laugh uh and you can turn your brain off for a couple of hours so absolutely t hanks
1: for me oh yes definitely t hanks uh for the nostalgia value uh uh much like eric uh This is probably my favorite Tom Hanks film, uh, or at least certainly my favorite of the early funny ones. Um, And uh, there are a few minor plot quibbles, but, I mean, for example, my thing is, why would... Number one, why is Debbie with Rick? But number two, why is Debbie... Why was (laughs) Debbie with Cole? I mean, what... Cole is basically just a douchebag for the whole movie. Like, what, you know, no, how? So that's pretty much it. But yes, (laughs) T. Hanks all the way.
2: I'm going to come up with a no no prize explanation right off the top of my head of why Debbie was with Cole. I'm going to say that it was she was set up with him because he was also from a rich family. And she wanted to make her family happy. And so she dated him and then finally realized... I need to think of my own happiness, not my my father and mother's happiness. I can't date him anymore. I need to date the kind of guy that I like. Oh,
0: that's a good one. I like that. It doesn't explain how on earth she got with a bus driver. That's the <laughs> <laughs> that's the more puzzling part. You're like, where did they meet? How did they meet? Like, you know, was she hanging around outside Catholic schools? And if so, why was she hanging around outside Catholic <laughs> schools? Like, what's going on there? Like, it just doesn't it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, it's an enjoyable little film. Um, so, before we go, I will say, is there anything that either of you want to plug? I'll say, John, is there anything you want to uh, plug? No, I currently do not have anything to plug. And uh, how about you, Eric? You have anything you wish to plug? Uh,
2: I have completed two Movies by Minute podcasts, if anyone was an interested. Uh, two other uh, movies, both from the 80s uh, Escape from New York Minute and Flash Gordon Minute. They can be, both be found on anywhere you listen to your podcasts
0: and do you have any social media for those
2: uh they're both on twitter they both have facebook pages you would just have to look up flash gordon minute or escape from new york minute
0: uh great stuff and uh you can find us on twitter at the extremely hard to understand t underscore ft memory um that was i could that's all i could fit into a a twitter handle Uh, unfortunately they, they wouldn't let me have the whole thing um So, yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you fellas, but next week we're going to be hunting around for somebody who's just wearing one red shoe. I mean, what could that mean? Uh, Join us next week uh, for that. John will be returning, and we'll have a different Eric uh, to uh, to be a guest. I'm rotating through the Erics as I go through this podcast. So uh, join me, John, and Eric to talk about The Man with One Red Shoe.